Does anyone still doubt climate change is real? So isn't nuclear power a nice, acceptable interim solution? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. One of the great historic changes that evolved from the 19th to now the 21st century is that where once only the wealthiest, most powerful ruling class could enjoy the fruits of colonialism, the effortless ability to partake in those once exotic riches became widely realized. And of course, we love it. Any ugly aspects, however, of the processes of harvesting those goods was then in the 19th century and today remains conveniently out of sight. We don't have to look at that ugly stuff. Today, much of what we've come to depend on, rare earth elements necessary for such basics as cell phones, are just taken for granted. Who thinks about where those parts come from or how they get from the earth to our iPhones? And the same is true for nuclear power, where once America relied on coal mines with all their dangers and directly connected adverse health effects. Then there was oil, which we know now is highly polluting. Uh, and as with all fossil fuels, the effects of our dependence on oil on climate change are clearly unsustainable. The British and the U.S have long brought this cheap power into our homes through mutually profitable arrangements with less than savory regimes in the Middle East. Yeah, then there's nuclear power. Since it was so effectively sold to us through kids' books when I was young, like Our Friend the Atom. In the post-war period, the promoters of nuclear energy have done an impressive job at convincing Americans that nuclear is a cleaner, better, greener generator of electricity than all the others. But as with all the other riches dug up from around the world delivered to our homes and businesses, any ill effects have been intentionally made invisible. And as with the case of the colonialists of the 19th century, the riches gleaned from people in places we do not see are indeed significant. They really are. They're no secret where the stuff comes from. They may be hidden to us, but the damages are real. So it is with nuclear power today. As most people just get the electricity benefits, others are protected uh, from seeing, that, that we're protected from seeing, do pay a price. Well, our guest today, Linda Pence Gunter, has written an article addressing what it is we don't see about what even some progressives believe is a benign source of energy. It is not. The article is titled, Nuclear Power is Racist, sexist and ageist. So why does some progressives support it? Linda Pence Gunter is the editor and curator of BeyondNuclearInternational.org and the international specialist at Beyond Nuclear. Hey, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive, Linda. Thanks for having me on, Bert. Seeing the article brought back a memory of a film oh, I saw many, many years ago showing young indigenous boys in America happily at play having a ball sliding down a mountain of radioactive tailings, waste products of, I believe, it's the milling process. As our guest writes, Navajo children are especially vulnerable to uranium exposure and among the least protected. Since the 1940s, the entire world has known the destructive power of the energy unleashed by the atomic bomb and the massive effects of the radiation that goes on 
forever, I guess, for a little history. How is it that from the many above-ground nuclear tests to the actual bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, though its deleterious effects were unseen, the concept of the peaceful atom became so widely accepted. How could those effects be so effectively kept from view? What we're seeing today, especially, and, and the propaganda really has sort of ramped up, I think, exponentially recently, is the lobbying power of the nuclear industry, which is well entrenched. And, and the propaganda is very simple, even though it's untrue. And they've sort of seized on the climate crisis to sell these myths, because obviously now we've left things probably far too late to address them effectively uh, entirely with renewables right away, which is something we could have done if we'd acted sooner. So progressive politicians, I think, want to look like they're doing the right thing on climate and, and they get money from nuclear corporations and they've sort of bought into this all of the above myth because it uh -huh. sounds easier to say, well, you know, let's use nuclear because it's here now anyway um, <clears throat> while we ramp up renewables and so on. And, and that, that obviates the need to really understand the energy landscape. And I think there's also the challenge of the you know, the willingness of today's media not to dig too deep, to assume that, you know, anyone with a PhD and is, has a corporate or government title is a believable source, you know, no matter what their obvious conflicts of interest may be. So it's really difficult to get the counter view and empirical information published on the air or on mainstream media. I mean, not just us, you know, we're obviously an anti-nuclear group, so they treat us with suspicion, although they don't tr give that same suspicion to the pro-nuclear <laughs> entities. But even, you know, august figures in academia have a hard time, you know, getting into the New York Times. So, and, and I think finally, the way it's worked is that um, there's an unwillingness to look at anything other than the generation phase, you know, although even that's highly problematic from a health point of view, um, and I expect we'll talk about that later, but if you only look at the generation phase of nuclear power, you miss the human rights impacts, you miss the environmental justice impacts, and you would miss the environmental damage done. Yeah, interesting. We love to get the electricity. People use a lot of electricity. And I, I, I remember thinking how, oh, back in the late 70s, uh, that, yeah, we don't have to use so much electricity. The, the, the amount of energy that can be saved from retrofitting old, uh, you know, uh, buildings that, that are just uh, really not uh, effective uh, could be a tremendous amount of money. So we've known for a long time that we need to do something about electricity. But as with so many things, we just kick the can down the road. And so here we are now, and, you know, all of the above. They need to look like yeah. that. And, uh, you know, it looks better than than coal, for example, or, or total dependence on oil. But a lot of these so-called progressives, you know, in Congress still take money from not only the nuclear industry, but the other industries as well. So I guess we can't really expect too much from them. We might, I wish we could expect a little more uh, 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 homework done by the media, but boy, you know, let's face it, they tend to be lazy and do easy things and, you know, not have to look at things and, oh yeah, we're getting the electricity. Who wants to look beyond that? Nobody. 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, I was in the journalism field for a long time, and what, what really sort of got me jaded at the end was that sort of spoon-feeding mentality, spoon mentality <laughs> that idea that you can just sort of sit in a press conference and take whatever's said as read and not question it or think, well, maybe there's another, you know, dimension to this. And I think, you know, you hit on a very important thing uh, when you started to allude to conservation and energy efficiency, yes. because obviously those are two components that arguably could get us you know, almost to the solution of climate change without even having to go down the renewable energy route. And yet in this country, you know, houses are being built ever bigger. I think the average light bulb quantity in an American home now is 70, which is insane, you know. So there's a tremendous amount of wastefulness and a refusal to adapt lifestyle to our current crisis. And it's time that, you know, we wake up and realize that it's not business as usual and it's not lifestyle as usual anymore because we failed to address those things early enough where we could have the luxury of expending lots of uh, energy. Oh, yeah, well, history, that's one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history and that we could, uh, there there have been solutions and we've just swept them under the rug. So l let's talk about some of the effects uh, from, from uh, nuclear power that may not be seen, that are kept invisible, is, and, and how it is that you, as you point out, and many who consider themselves how is it that, as you point out, many of those who consider themselves progressive on social environmental environmental issues support nuclear power with almost, as you say, fervent evangelism? I mean, after Chernobyl and Three Mile Island, the, the public image of nuclear took a big hit, really big hit, understandably and I think appropriately. So what can be said about the continuing power in the 2020s of the nuclear industry in Washington and in our state legislatures? Well, I think as before, you know, I think they're very much buying a sort of party line from the industry without looking any deeper because it's a comfort zone, you know, that you don't have to really change anything uh, if you just accept the status quo. But I think, again, it's also because they're only looking at nuclear power through the lens of the generation phase. Right. Uh, and if you do that, and even then, I mean, there are obviously issues with the damage that's done to the environment, the radioactive releases routinely, um, the amount of water that nuclear power plants consume. I mean, it is almost beyond comprehension that anyone can endorse a big thermoelectric generator under a climate crisis conditions that consumes that amount of water because that's going to be the one commodity that's going to be truly scarce. And so we not only need to get away from polluting uh, carbon emitting industries, but we also need to get away from this massive water consumption. But those things are just never really addressed. And I think the other thing that's not addressed is the time factor, you know, that any talk of building new nuclear power plants is completely you know, it's a mirage, really, because the amount of time that they take to come on, right. uh, I, I, you know, at least a decade, sometimes more, at a vast expense. And so every dollar that you invest in that black hole could have got us more energy savings, more carbon reductions faster for less cost um, if it had been invested in renewable energy and energy efficiency. So there's nothing sort of logical in the conversation. The un the, the you know, the underbelly of all this is the connection to nuclear weapons. And that's something that's 
almost never discussed. It's emerged more in the UK because it's so clear that the UK's desperate attempt to hold on to its Trident nuclear-powered submarines is all about small modular reactor technology, which is a is totally applicable to that. And therefore, the push to build new nuclear and keep a workforce that knows what it's dealing with uh, in business and that flow of know-how and personnel into the military sector is paramount. And that's probably also true uh, in the US. And also, as we've seen, you know, the, the new designs for new reactors all have prolif- you know, serious proliferation issues attached to them and could be easily utilized to manufacture at least weapons usable, if not weapons grade fuel. So I think there's a sort of unwritten narrative there, or, you know, it's not unwritten, but it's unpublicized Mm -hmm. about the uh, nuclear weapons agenda that's, that's attached to the nuclear power, to the new nuclear power agenda. But as far as keeping current reactors open, again, I mean, it's been shown time and again that if you continue, they have to be subsidized. That's what they're asking for now. They're asking for government handouts to keep running, the ones that we're planning to close. And that's going to take funding away from implementing, you know, developing and implementing renewable energy technology, Mm -hmm. which have got you greater carbon reductions in less time for less money. So, you know, there's, it's, it's almost impossible to understand the logic behind it. And unfortunately, you know, the dialogues that we would like to have um, just don't materialize with the senators who are, you know, banding nuclear power around. I mean, I, I think there's also this unwillingness to open up the dialogue and try to understand that maybe there's a, a different way to go and maybe you're wrong, you know, that there isn't that willingness to admit that. And again, I mean, I just before we just had our primaries here in Maryland, so I for governor and other positions. But for the governors, I thought, well, I sort of do an informal poll to see, yeah. you know, where they are on nuclear power. And most of them didn't reply at all. But, uh, you know, a couple of them are sort of bought into this, well, maybe right now because of the climate crisis, we need to hold on to the ones we have. And, and they clearly have just sort of bought that headline that they've seen places, but they actually haven't studied the reality, the economic reality of what that would actually mean and how much that would deprive our progress on the one energy source, renewables, that actually could help us move in the right direction. So I think it's a whole big combination of things. My goodness, there is a lot there. That's for sure. And so many things people don't think about. We just you know, use the electricity. It's so much easier. We don't have to think about it. Uh, you know, it's much easier than thinking. And I'm trying to remember, you You probably do remember which scientist many years ago defined nuclear power as an insane way to boil water. <laughs> yes, well, I'm sure that, that's, that's a commonly held view, I think, but I don't know who specifically might have and, said and in the, those words. But The water, but yeah, it doesn't people, make sense. people don't think about, I mean, we're we're seeing on TV the the draining of our, our American reservoirs, how much water is being used, and yet I don't have any idea about how much water uh, the nuclear plants really use. I know that here uh, in New Hampshire we have the Seabrook nuclear plant, which takes, I believe, salt water from the ocean and sucks it in and spits it back out way yeah. out there. If you have a, yeah, if you have a once-through cooling system, so these are the ones that don't have the cooling towers, um, it's a million gallons of water a minute, typically. That's a huge amount of water. I mean, that water goes back out right. into the, the 
body of water from which it came, but at heat. So it therefore uh, starts to damage the aquatic environment into which it's discharged, along with the fact that it's discharging who knows what radionuclides and possibly other contaminants it's picked up on the way. The ones with cooling towers are evaporating that water, so that water is actually lost completely, and it goes back into the atmosphere. So, I mean, eventually it'll come down as rain, but, you know, it's a... it's a huge amount of water, and that's one of the big problems. You know, France is sort of held up as this poster child for nuclear energy. It's actually a sort of it's a disaster movie, really. And one of the problems with France is that because they're so heavily reliant on nuclear power, almost eighty uh, percent at its peak, it's now I think seventy percent uh, for electricity from nuclear power. And now that we're seeing extreme heat and they've already had this problem actually more than a decade ago but when it gets very hot in the summer and the not only does the water supply then drop so that they don't have access from reservoirs lakes rivers to what they usually do but the water actually heats up so it's actually not safe for them to bring hot water into the plant because then it's heated within the plant that's caused those reactors to have to either power down so they're producing less electricity not reliable when people need their electricity most or shut down altogether and in winter uh, because they're so reliant on electric heat because it was mandated that heat in France had to be electric to support the monopoly of the nuclear industry they cannot meet demand and they have to import guess where from Germany they have to import electricity to meet demand. So the nuclear monopoly, apart from being very expensive and risky, um, has resulted in France not having a vibrant renewable energy sector because it's been completely squeezed out for decades by renewable energy. And now when they have to power or shut down, I mean, I think it was a month ago, half of their reactor fleet was shut down for one reason or another. You know, they are not reliable. They're not there when you need it most. So it's um, you know it's a it's a false idea that somehow nuclear power is a safe, b reliable, and c, and c cheap. I mean it's mm. the opposite of all those three things, and that's why you know it, it remains very baffling. And I tend to think it's related to the weapons piece. Why our elected officials? Uh, stay married to this idea that we should continue to use it. If you're just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and, and we're we're looking under the covers as to what the heck is real with nuclear power. It's not all an acceptable interim solution. At least our guest is arguing that to, ca- to be the case, and our guest today is Linda Pence-Gunter, who is editor and curator of beyondnuclearinternational.org, And she's written an article called Nuclear Power is Racist, Sexist, and Ageist. Why do some progressives uh, support it? So so much to ask about there. I I had no idea that France required electric heat. That's amazing. And if we look at the connection between nuclear power and nuclear weapons, well, gosh, you know, people seem to be in America upset that Iran— which is developed, you know, it has nuclear power, that they might be using that for nuclear weapons. Well, maybe that should tell us something. <laughs> you know, there really, there is a connection to that, and people are not aware of that. So it's some of the nuclear waste, I believe, that goes into making the nuclear bombs, yes? Well, the, the, you have to enrich uranium uh-huh. to a uh-huh. nuclear weapons grade level. And so what's going on in Iran 
<clears throat> with their centrifuges is that they, at the, at the beginning, were enriching the uranium to about 5% so that it would be u- usable as a fuel for civilian nuclear power plants. If they continue to enrich it, and I think now they're saying it's up to 20%, it's potentially weapons usable, but it's not weapons grade. It has uh-huh. to be over 90% to be weapons grade. Uh-huh. So, But the whole point, of course, is that the reason that there's all this fuss and panic over Iran, which is a signatory to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, and if you're a signatory to the NPT, you have this so-called inalienable right to develop nuclear power, right? So um, you can, under the NPT, develop nuclear power. uh, But of course, you always could transition to developing nuclear weapons. And that's a very blurry line. And so the concern is that Iran might do that. So that tells you right there that keeping the door open to the development of nuclear power also means keeping the door open to the development of nuclear weapons. So it sort of kneecaps the whole treaty, really, by uh, making this sort of this consolation prize. And again, there's no logic to it, because if you're Saudi Arabia and you want to, why would you want to develop nuclear power by as a compensation for forswearing the development of nuclear weapons? If you need electricity and you're Saudi Arabia and you need it because you want to export your oil rather than burn it, right? Sure, yeah. Why would you choose nuclear? Why wouldn't you choose solar in Saudi Arabia or even wind in Saudi Arabia, which is obviously primed for both those energy sources? There's only one reason that Saudi Arabia would be interested in developing nuclear power, and that's the same reason that Iran has it. The potential, if they so choose, to continue to enrich uranium to the point where they can develop nuclear weapons. And so they're they're inextricably bound together. And until you unlock that, you know, and, un- and eradicate that bond, we'll never be rid of one or the other. So I mm. think that's, you know, that, I mean, obviously this, this wasn't part of what I wrote. Right. And, we'll and the article I wrote, you know, lit up the trollosphere in no uncertain terms, <laughs> because I think what it exposed was, you know, this, this ugly underbelly that, they don't want you to see that, you know, you, yes. you can sort of just about barely make the argument that somehow nuclear energy is kind of low carbon if you only look at the generation phase. And you can sort of try to justify putting it into the Green New Deal if you only look at the generation phase. But if you, as soon as you ask the question, well, how did the fuel get here? Yes. How did the reactor building get here? Yes. Where does the fuel go after you finished with it? As soon as you ask those questions, which this article you know, posits the answers to, then the whole argument falls apart because that you then you're talking about contamination of the environment, uh, environmental injustices, which target communities of color and indigenous peoples, you know, so it, it no longer becomes this nice little clean, safe, you know, reliable nuclear story. Oh, but that's such a nice picture. Uh, it, it would be lovely if we could believe it. But the the assertion that nuclear power is racist was, uh, it. I haven't seen that mentioned before. Tell us, please, how at its base, nuclear power is racist. Well, in order for a nuclear power plant to function, it needs fuel. And that fuel is uranium, which has to be mined from the ground and then milled and processed into fuel. 
And if it has been used by the reactor, it's left over as waste, more radioactive actually than the fuel itself. So at both ends of this process, it has been communities of color and especially indigenous communities that have been targeted to manage the mining and the waste. And that's not just true of Native Americans in the U.S., but of First Nations in Canada, in parts of Africa, including the Tuareg in Niger, of Aboriginal peoples in Australia. And actually, a colleague of mine once suggested that an ideal place to bury the high-level radioactive waste would be underneath the White House in Washington, D.C., because it's largely built on granite. But of course, the place that the U.S. selected, right. although ultimately rejected, was on Western Shoshone land in Nevada. So that's why, I mean, this headline, you know, was quite inflammatory, obviously, and it inflamed people. Um, but it's true. I mean, there's no debate about whether the preponderance of uranium mines are on lands of indigenous peoples. That's just an empirical fact. There's no debate about whether uh, radioactive waste in this country has been targeted for Indian reservations, you know, first the Goshu Indian Reservation in Utah, also Western Shoshone land in Nevada. I mean, that's just the reality. It disproportionately targets low-income communities predominantly mm -hmm. of color, and when you look at the global picture, predominantly indigenous communities. So it's, you know, it's not an arguable issue. It's just that when you use terms, hot button terms like racism and sexism, uh, then, you know, as I said, the trollosphere kind of lights up because they just can't stand the fact that you've exposed <laughs> the truth about the front and back ends of the nuclear, nuclear fuel chain. Ah, yes. And <coughs> people don't, don't want to see that, especially as you call it, the trollosphere. Um, so the basic fuel for nuclear weapons and power is, is uranium. It, it's got to be mined from the Earth. I don't think it's mined anywhere near here. Uh, but uh, tell us, please, about what you describe as the environmental degradation both created and then left behind by the uranium mines when they cease to operate as most in the U.S. now have. And a lot of these mines, I believe, are, as you mentioned, in, in Africa and in uh, American indigenous areas. What are the numbers? How many, how many have been shut down, these uranium mines? And tell us about the environmental degradation, degradation at both uh, when it's created and then when they're you know, shut down. Sure. Well, when uranium is mined, actually between 70% and 80% of the radioactivity in the original uranium ore is actually not pure enough to be used for a reactor fuel. So it's left behind in what call, they're called tailings, which are really mm -hmm. radioactive sludges mm -hmm. and rocks and dust. And there's also actually heavy metals released during uranium mining, which are sometimes more toxic even than the radioactive isotopes that are released. So what that means with the tailings is that they remain in the local environment. And that radioactive detritus left behind at mine sites is found in the soil, in the water, and in the air. And in terms of the U.S., there were, on Navajo Nation alone, 500 uranium mines, all now closed. Wow. And there were approximately, in the country at large, approximately 15,000 uranium mines altogether, mostly on Native American reservations. 
Today, there's reportedly, I think, only one uranium mine still operating in the U.S. It's the Nichols Ranch in Wyoming and only one uranium mill in White Mesa in Utah. So clearly you can see the disproportionate targeting of Native American land from uranium mining is is you know a reality and not an allegation. Yeah, it's it's pretty clear. And I, I was as you described it, I was re- reminded of seeing that film of the indigenous kids uh, sliding down a mountain of uh, uranium tailings. It's appalling. It looks like fun. It looked like fun when they were sliding down like like a sand dune. Mm-hmm. Oh my mm-hmm. goodness! So we've mentioned the Navajo children. And what's known about the effects specifically on the Navajo Nation and why they are particularly at effect? How is it that these populations are most impacted? Well, as I mentioned, about a third of all U.S. uranium mines were on the Navajo Nation. So clearly they were the most impacted. So 500 out of those, well, actually, that's not a third. I'm very bad at math, but 500 out of 15,000, so not a third. But a large predominance of their um, mines were on on Navajo land. And needless to say, there's been a paucity of studies to establish the health impacts. So they've been very much left, you know, out of sight and out of mind. However, there've been, I would say, two positive developments. One is the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, which does compensate uranium miners and their descendants, among other groups, for their suffering, although the burden of proof is still quite arduous for victims. So probably not everybody who is eligible for compensation has been able to navigate through the paperwork to get it. Mm. But the other thing is the Navajo birth cohort study, which is something that was conducted in 2010, and it followed up on an earlier examination of Navajo babies born between 1964 and 1981 that showed congenital abnormalities, uh, so anomalies like Development, developmental disorders and other adverse birth outcomes. Right. And these were all associated with a mother living near uranium mines and waste. Mm. So the Navajo birth cohort study is a community-based and community-driven initiative examine the impact of chronic exposure to mine waste on birth outcomes. And it concluded that Native Americans living near abandoned uranium mines have an increased likelihood for things like kidney disease and hypertension and an increased likelihood of developing multiple chronic diseases linked to their proximity to the mine waste and activities, bringing them in contact with the waste. And and what this is really about, and I think is not so well understood, is that prolonged exposure to even so-called low doses of radiation is often just as, if not more harmful than one sudden exposure to a high dose, a single high dose. And so these are people who depend on the land, live off the land, interact with the land a lot, you know, much more than us who go to the supermarket and buy a packet of frozen peas. I mean, these are people who grow food, catch food, you know, live in, in an authentic way with the land. And so they are more vulnerable from that point of view. And I think the other aspect of it with these children, especially on Navajo, is the intense deprivation deprivation exists on Indian reservations in terms of health care. I mean, we saw that during the COVID, the, you know, the peak of the COVID crisis when it first hit before vaccinations were around. And they were by far the most badly impacted demographic in the entire country. And that's partly to do with poor access to healthy lifestyle and to medical care. Uh, and so in addition to living on, uh, being exposed to the radioactivity left behind from the uranium mines, they have less opportunity to mitigate that harm as well. And as, as you describe it, I can't help but be reminded of 
the old 19th century notion of, of colonialism. You know, they pay the price. We dig the stuff up from where they are, not us, and we get to profit from it. And they, well, hey, too bad. Too bad. Nothing we can do about it here. And you're, you're on your own when it comes to dealing with the health effects of having a nuclear a uranium mine shut down near you. Just appalling, really. I, uh, you know, it'd be nice if we had some sense of morality. Oh, well, <laughs> silly me to even talk about such things. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with Linda Pence-Gunter, who's written an article called uh, Nuclear Power is Racist, Sexist, and Ageist. So why does some progressive support it? So... It seems like the, the case for nuclear being racist is pretty clear. In what ways, as you allege, is it sexist as well? Tell us, please, about the problems of the measure that is used known as reference man. That's very curious. I sure as heck never heard about that. Yes, well, there's actually quite a big effort that we're involved with now to change that. I mean, it's been uh, criticized for many, many years, but Reference Man was established to, it was created to sort of establish a so-called safe radiation exposure standard. So uh -huh. how much radiation is can you be exposed to before it starts to do harm? But the exact definition of Reference Man not only ignores the greater vulnerability of women, which is women, which is, has been established, but it throws us back into the racist argument as well, because this is how it's actually, I'm going to quote you uh, the definition of reference man. It's as, quote, a nuclear industry worker, 20 to 30 years of age, who weighs 150 pounds, is 67 inches tall, is a Caucasian, and is a Western European or North American in habitat and custom. So that is pretty specific. And obviously, the robustness of a healthy white mid-30s male uh, or mid-20s to 30s male <clears throat> compared to the vulnerability of a woman or a pregnant woman and her fetus or a small child or an elderly person is completely different. And so um, what we've learned in studies, and it's not, in in not entirely clear why this is the case, but that it is the case that women are more susceptible to radiation exposure. Uh -huh. And it could be, it is thought possibly to do with our greater hormone production, but it was observed early on in cohort studies of victims of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings where they looked at women and men who were between the ages of 26 and 30 years old who experienced the same amount of exposure and um, the women in that study suffered 50% more cancer than the men. Mm. Um, and of course, it's even worse, as I mentioned before, for pregnant women because fetuses and newborns and young children are also more vulnerable because their cells are still dividing. So, you know, not only is reference man inappropriate because it ignores women, but it's really inappropriate in, in the sense that it ignores children and particularly female children. And so actually my colleague Cindy Folkers at Beyond Nuclear mm -hmm. and Mary Olson, uh, of, is all, uh, who's also involved in this, she, they are developing something called... Uh, reference girl, um, which is an effort to push this to be changed, to have reference girl be the standard by which so-called allowable, and that doesn't mean safe, but allowable right. doses of radiation are established. So, um, 
yeah, it's it's a big issue, and um, it, so that you know, saying it's sexist is again, it's a bit of a trigger word, but it's just a way of catching your attention to say, wait a minute, you know, women and children, and especially female children, are disproportionately harmed in the same way that communities of color are disproportionately harmed through exposure to radiation, and they're not protected for. You know, the person who's protected for is a healthy white male in his mid twenties. That's not the person who's most vulnerable. So the standard should apply really actually to a fetus, reference fetus, who's the most vulnerable mm. of all these, and then go from there. But, you know, we'll see where we get with this. I hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll start to get some progress because there's been, as I said, a lot of criticism of this standard for a very, very long time. And wh- where, where did that standard come from again? And w- just remind us. It was established uh, years ago. In actual fact, the earlier before that, and I'd have to look up the exact date, but I think it was in this 1960 under the Eisenhower administration, uh, they looked at the possibility of reference child. I mean, it was recognized that that a child was more vulnerable than mm-hmm. anybody else. Mm-hmm. And at some point, it just sort of morphed into reference man. So, um, you know, that's been the standard for many decades but um, it's clearly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's pretty, uh, pretty amazing. But so much about this is just, uh, it's like, you know what the answer you want is. So, you know, finding ways to, to justify the answer that you come up with. We got to uh, work around that. And uh, what are the, nu- the nuclear waste? There's, there's high level and low level as I understand it, which is not much. But it's been, what to do with that stuff has been an unanswered question throughout the history of the industry. My my understanding is that currently they have like pools, literally pools of water that they put the spent fuel rods in for a temporary uh, time until they figure out what the heck else to do with it. Yucca Mountain was long envisioned as Ah, the answer. Why was that attractive? And what led to its final cancellation? What population would have been most effective? And what what is their experience with nuclear uh, prior to a talk of the mountain as being a repository? Yes, well, as you said, all the nuclear fuel, all the nuclear fuel that has been used and is irradiated at reactor sites in the U.S. is currently at the reactor sites. Some of it is still in the fuel pools because it has to stay there because it's just thermally very hot for right. uh, five years. And then it's moved to casks, which are currently on site. And for a long time, there's been this effort to find a deep geological repository right. to which these casks will be transported and then buried. So Yucca Mountain was uh, in Nevada. Uh, was originally chosen, um, and it was. Why was it attractive? It was attractive politically. Uh. Uh, originally, originally, other sites were looked at, including, as you probably know, New Hampshire, <laughs> um, and there yes. was strong political opposition as well as popular opposition. There was a referendum. Oh, yes. You know that there, there was. Yeah. So New Hampshire had a lot of political power in those days, and was and was able to say, you know, you can't choose us. So eventually, Nevada was actually the only state ever considered, the only site ever considered, and it was known colloquially as the Screw Nevada Bill. So it was a political choice, and it was defeated politically, largely because of the powerful position held by then. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid from Nevada. Uh-huh. So whilst Reid was in the Senate and alive, um, 
there was a tremendous amount of political power to prevent Yucca Mountain, which was eventually cancelled under the Obama administration. However, all that aside, in reality, it was actually an unsuitable site geologically because it was in a highly seismic areas and studies showing that water would penetrate the radioactive casts over time. And it was also a violation of the Treaty of Ruby Valley, which was signed by the U.S. with the Western Shoshone Nation, who deeply opposed the dump. And of course, you ask about what they'd also already endured. <laughs> I'm sure knowing that the Western Shoshone endured uh, more atomic tests on their land than any other nation on Earth at the Nevada test site, where not only the Americans, but actually also the British, conducted more than 900 atomic tests between them, 24 of them oh by the British. God. So as a result, the Western Shoshone described themselves as, quote, the most bombed nation on Earth, unquote. And there's this sort of myth, you know, that Yucca Mountain, there's nothing out there, it's just a desert. But when you talk to right. the Western Shoshone, who really know that land, you find out that it's full of life. It's full of actually some incredibly rare species that are not found anywhere else on Earth. And so it, it's just this same idea that we can take it out West where there will be little, you know, low political opposition and a native mm -hmm. tribe that probably would take the money. Mm -hmm. and, and this is what's going on. You know, we don't have to get into detail about this, but the alternative to Yucca Mountain now is this idea of consolidated interim storage sites, which is an above ground sort of parking lot for the high level waste. So this is not the so the high level waste is everything that comes out of the reactor and, and the low level waste is everything else. So the high-level waste, and these are misnomers because low-level waste often contains things like plutonium, which is oh, radioactive geez. for you know, 240,000 years. So yeah, it's, not, it's a sort of loose terminology. But the high-level waste that is still sitting at the reactor sites in the pools and casts would go under this new plan to two sites in New Mexico and Texas, again, largely Hispanic sites, uh -huh. not voluntarily, um, and sit in kind of parking lot outdoor dumps until such time as maybe perhaps one day we will find a geological repository, which might be never, which means that they're not really interim. They are probably going to be de facto permanent. So it's again this sort of get it out of here somewhere else, um, but let's dump it in communities where we think there will be least resistance, which is what happened when they tried to move high-level waste to the Goshoot Indian Reservation in Utah, which offered them a massive bribe. It uh -huh. split the tribe, and it was eventually defeated, but it was this idea that you know they need the money desperately, so they'll be willing to take this, and that's actually you know, fairly typical of any search for a repository like this, that it's made, you know, financially very enticing because otherwise who would want it? Really? You know? So um, only desperation breeds that kind of Faustian bargain. So I, I think that that's, you know, that Yucca Mountain is a lesson in that uh, that should be taken very seriously. And as you said, you know, we've never come up with a solution as to what to do with this waste, which is another reason, compelling reason not to continue to make more of it, which is obviously the first solution, which is to stop generating this stuff. And that is, you know, our mantra beyond nuclear when they say, well, what do you think should happen? You say, well, the first thing that has to happen before you do anything else is you must stop generating it. That's step one, obviously. <laughs> yeah, it's so obvious, but people don't want to get it. They just want, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And, you know, as you described, you know, these, these communities 
living in desperation, terribly poor communities, and, and to, to basically bribe them. I mean, that is racism. Let's face it. Maybe people deny that it's, to me, I, I just, you know, it, it just, you can't get clearer than that. I suppose you could, but that's pretty darn clear. And nearly 50 years ago, back in 1973, I lived up a hill in Vernon, Vermont. From the kitchen window, I can still picture it, one could see the entire Vernon nuclear plant, which has been shut down, luckily. It was right across the street from an elementary school. I mean, right across the street from an elementary school. And I just, they must have incentivized the town of Vernon as well to have a nuclear plant. You know, it's on the, the Connecticut River, but right across the street from a nuclear plant. And it's true, you know, elementary school children are not the very young, but I wonder about the risk that, that they face there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there have been you know, very famous studies, mostly coming out of Germany. The first one came out of Germany, looking mm. at children age five and under and their proximity to nuclear power plants. And what they found, and this has been replicated over and over in other studies, and there's even a meta-analysis of this now that you know, demonstrates the veracity of this, that children living five and under, age five and under, living close to nuclear power plants had higher rates of leukemia than children living further away. And the closer they lived to the plant, the higher the rates of leukemia. So those children, I've been to that elementary school, I actually took a film crew from France there who were making a documentary, oh and they couldn't believe it. When they, we, we just went to film the plant. They turned around and said, wait, what, there's an elementary school across the street? I mean, how can this be? You know, so um, it was just uh, completely shocking to them and me, frankly, and I knew it was there. But um, yes, I mean, obviously, that's a risk, and uh, the risks are incentivized by fire yes. trucks and new libraries and, and all the other things. And, and, this, and this is... I think speaks to a problem that has really come back to haunt us now in so many areas of our life uh, in this country, which is this unwillingness to look at the collective well-being of ourselves and future generations and only look at sort of instant gratification of the here and now for what I want um, to be successful, affluent, whatever, you know, that that's what matters. And if we don't take a sort of long-term view about, you know, what we all need to do collectively for our well-being, uh, we'll continue to see nuclear power plants next to elementary schools instead of closing these things down and concentrating on simplifying our lives and using less energy building the kinds of energy needs we need, which is definitely wind and solar, but mm -hmm. above all, energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. You know, as you mentioned earlier, I think retrofitting, weatherization can save a phenomenal amount of energy use right there, bring people's electric bills down. I mean, it's a complete win-win. The investment in doing that pays off so many times over. Yes. Um, and so it's, it, as you said, an, a complete no-brainer. But um, I think we're sort of blinded to the sort of immediate benefits of, oh, right, today we have a job and, a, and five libraries, but it doesn't really matter if our children get leukemia. I mean, that, that is a skewed set of values. It, it does bring up a question of morals to me anyway. You know, we get yes, some period of time where we get this electricity, but a whole bunch of generations at risk 
from what we're doing now. And, you know, one would think maybe we could learn that from, you know, how we got here to this incredible climate change and, and, and you know, threat to, uh, to the globe from, from stuff we've just ignored and swept under the rug for so long because it's so convenient. If you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Linda Pence-Gunter, of uh, Beyond Nuclear, and she has an article, Nuclear Power is Racist, Sexist, and Ageist. So why do some progressives support it? Now, talk about we've talked about racism and sexism. I was 22 when I lived in Vernon, Vermont. I'm a tad older than that now, so I guess that puts me in the vulnerable category of the elderly. You write, elders exposed to radiation are mainly to be found in the uranium mining and milling communities, or where waste dumps are located. In what ways are people in my age group more vulnerable in those mining and milling communities? The elderly people, uh, you know, who live in the communities where waste is stored and mined, I, I imagine they're far more at risk than the older uh, former reference man. Talk about that, please, the ageism. <laughs> they're a bit older than reference man. And I, yeah. I think, you know, <laughs> because elders, you know, Beyond the fact that elders are more vulnerable to negative impacts, as we've seen, like, for example, with COVID-19, I mean, those of us who are over 65 were pretty much first in line, right? Or or I think it was maybe a bit older than that. But the people who were given the vaccines first were generally speaking elderly because they were considered most vulnerable. And so clearly, as we get older, we're more vulnerable to more harmful outcomes from things that younger people can more easily withstand, including something like COVID-19. And those outcomes are exacerbated by socioeconomic conditions, you know, access to health care, access to health insurance, you know, the willingness at the first symptom to go for treatment rather than saying, well, it'll be too expensive, I'll wait and maybe I'll get better. And then you get much worse and it becomes maybe not curable. Um, And so when the already more frail members of our population are then also living in deprived communities, such as Indian reservations, Uh where access to health care and healthy food are greatly diminished, Mm. they are more at risk of fatal outcomes. That's why the COVID statistics on Indian reservations were worse than anywhere else, um, because oftentimes even to get to a hospital was an undertaking that was impossible for some of those communities. And when they got there, I mean, I went actually to a Native American hospital when I was in, um, I think it was New Mexico, and I had some sort of thing that I needed to go to the ER for. And I saw my own eyes. I mean, I waited there all day in the corridor on the ground, surrounded by almost entirely Native American people who eventually gave up and went home. A lot of them, they never got seen at all, including me. (laughs) But, you know, I thought, wait, if I were back home, this would not be happening. It's happening in Gallup, New Mexico, because the facilities and the resources are so few and people have come from far and wide just to get to this hospital at all. So I think when you're talking about elderly people, very elderly people who are vulnerable anyway, um, the last thing they need is to be <laughs> exposed to the heavy metals and the radioactivity left over Uh, from uranium mining. And even, you know, we've talked about the closed mines, but obviously during the mining process itself, people were exposed on a routine basis. And not only the miners, but what happened was 
you know, they were not actually told at the beginning uh, what the harmful effects were. So they didn't have protective equipment. They didn't have respirators. They wore their clothes home after they'd worked the mines. Their wives washed their clothes. Their wives mm. were exposed. Their children were mm. exposed and so on. And so there's this sort of disregard for informing the population of what they're dealing with. Now, that is decades ago in the U.S. Today in Niger, in Arlet, where mm -hmm. the French mine uranium, you've got people still now building their shacks out of discarded radioactive metals from the mine or fashioning forks and spoons or stools. I mean, there was a French uh, laboratory that went over there just to do the testing that found a kid, you know, sitting on a radioactive stool. They found radioactive rocks outside the hospital in the street. I mean, this it's so dispersed and there's so little information um, to inform people about what they're dealing with and they're going to use what they can get their hands on because of the deprivation. Added to which, you know, this uranium mine is to fuel the electricity in France, but that town, a lot of people have no running water, no electricity, so they have none of the so-called benefits and all of the risks and all of the downsides. So that's a crime against humanity, I think. And, you know, it's appalling. It should be, and it is, it has been looked at in by the um, human rights commissions within the uh -huh. UN uh -huh. and by rapporteurs. You know, there have been at least two UN rapporteurs who've reported on this uh, exploitation of people and complete disregard for their health and well-being. So um, it's, a, it's a universal story. And when you bring people together from these indigenous communities around the world to tell their stories of uranium mining, they're all exactly the same. And at the waste end, you know, ab aboriginal uranium mines um, have been an issue. The waste dumps that are planned in Australia are also on aboriginal land. And it's been the elders, in fact, that have really been leading the fight against them. So it's a story that just replicates itself wherever you look. And we thought colonialism was over. Huh. It's exactly, that's just a perfect example of it. It really defines it. And I, I do want to say that, you know, retrofitting could create a lot of jobs and save a tremendous amount of energy, but the corporations don't get to make money from it. I think the only way you could have a, a, a retrofitting would be something like a new deal, a green new deal. Imagine that. And you wanted to point out uh, some, you know, the idea of a just transition and environmental justice. Uh, and uh, Greta Thunberg has, has talked about this in her Fridays for the Future movement. And there are governments in Europe who are opposed to the inclusion of nuclear power. Uh, so tell us about that uh, hopeful movement. I think so. I mean, uh, young people tend to get it, which is yeah, hopeful, true. I think. But, I mean, not always, not necessarily, but it certainly seems to be true in Europe anyway. I mean, the, the Sunshine Movement in here in the U.S. has been problematic in that they've made some sort of slightly ambiguous statements about nuclear power. We've tried to engage with them. They haven't responded or they've said, well, we think current nuclear power should continue, but we are against uh -huh. new nuclear power because it's environmentally unjust. And I thought, well, you know, don't you know where the fuel comes from for the current nuclear power plants? And we've tried to engage and educate them, but they they won't talk to us, which is frustrating. But Fridays for the Future is a whole different uh, scene. It's predominant. I mean, it's very big in Africa now as well, yeah. but started obviously in Europe. And so they get the fact that if you are proposing 
a Green New Deal, and the cornerstone of that is a just transition, which is environmental justice, then you can't possibly justify support for something like nuclear power, which is discriminatory and racist and um, environmentally unjust. It's just not, it doesn't fit within the Green New Deal if that's the framework through which you're uh. viewing it apart from all the other obvious reasons, which are to do with time and cost. You know, even if the carbon footprint of nuclear power was actually low, which it isn't, right. but even if it were, that's not the only metric because if it's too slow and too expensive, then other low carbon sources, then it's no use. And so it is too slow and too expensive. Therefore, regardless of the carbon footprint, it is no use. <laughs> and you have to spend that dollar to get the most carbon reductions the fastest at the least cost, right? That's the mantra. And nuclear power won't fit through that. <laughs> it doesn't belong there. And and people like Greta Thunberg get that. Yeah. Um, and they want to reject these massive thermoelectric, extractive, non-renewable, polluting, environmentally unjust resources because we don't have to use them and we can't afford to use them, not just fiscally, but for our own survival. You know, there's, there just hasn't been this realization, I think, that we can't continue to drill for oil. We can't continue to frack for gas. We have to stop that right now and switch to alternatives, even that, if that means a reduction in our, you know, wasteful lifestyles. Yeah. No, we don't have to drive to the store every two minutes to every time we forget something. You know, we need to transition away from using. And we haven't talked about the transportation sector. It's not something I focus on. But, of course, that's also a huge area that needs dealing with, which also cannot be solved by nuclear power. And, and ha we have to, you know, change all of those factors if we've got a chance of surviving. But we've got to do it in a fair and just non-discriminatory way, not in the way we've done the past, which is dump on people of color in far-flung places who we think, you know, have no political power, because that's been the tradition to date, especially in the nuclear sector. I never cared for colonialism back, you know, when it was so powerful in the 19th century. I still don't. Beyond nuclear, what can people do? We are not powerless. We, the people, are not powerless. What, what would suggest if people are listening to this and want to do something about it, what can they do? Well, we've tried to make it a little bit easier for people. So on beyondnuclearinternational.org, Beyond uh, we have a set of talking points. If you go to the uh -huh. website, you'll see immediately a big block says talking points. There's also something with handbooks, which is a little bit more detail. But these talking points are really kind of message points about all of this, like why nuclear has no role, not only no role to play in climate mitigation, but actually actively impedes progress on climate mitigation. And these are designed for you to use to write letters to the editor, to write op-eds, to give to your elected officials, to deliver to schools, public libraries, you know, wherever they are useful because we need to have our voices heard. As yes. we know, the mainstream media is not necessarily going to be that platform for us. So we have to do it ourselves, like you are. You know, you've got your show, that's your platform. You're able to communicate then to a, a wide public. We all need to develop our own methods of getting our voices heard. Because I think at the end of the day, you know, 
the, these so-called progressives in Congress who mm. endorse nuclear power won't do that if they know that their constituents exactly. don't agree with them. Yes. Because their concern is about getting elected and re-elected Absolutely. primarily, right? Yes. I mean, I know you've, you've been in this world, so I, I hope I don't sound too cynical. Oh, no. But, you know, I think that's the, that's the deal, that if they think that their job's up because they're they're endorsing a platform that their constituents won't agree with. They'll change. And Absolutely. so we have to change them. And the only way that we can change them is to speak up and speak out and go to their, uh, you know, their weekends when they're at home and talk to them and try to educate them so that they start to get the feeling that I may be missing the mark here. And that's our power. It's Absolutely. very hard. But, we, it, it, you know, it's no good sitting at home moaning. You have to get out there and do something about it, unfortunately. And we can do it. The website you suggest is beyondnuclearinternational.org. Thank you so much for being with us, Linda Pence-Gunter. And uh, we, we can do it. We can do it. They they care. You know, the only reason they raise money is to buy, you know, to, to convince us that they're the right people for it. It's about votes. It's about votes. They will listen if we make noise. Thank you so much. Thank you, but it was a pleasure. Just give me the warm power of the sun. Give me the steady flow of the waterfall. Give me the spirit of living things as they return to play. Just give me the restless power of the world.